I want you to open your Bibles, you opened it uh, for the scripture reading to Luke chapter 2, and I want you to stay in Luke chapter 2. First, let me say, uh, as I said already, that it's good to be back. Uh, You might see me today jumping out of my shoes. I might be a little bit, uh, I'm too excited to be back, but it's good to see all your faces. I thank you for the prayers for our family at this time. They're home. Just out of extra precaution, they've all tested negative, so they're, they're home, there's no issues there. Barbara and I have tested negative more times than we'd like to test negative, honestly. It's not the most fun test in the world. So, uh, but we're happy to be here, and we're happy to celebrate our, our Lord's birth with you today. So uh, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Um, and I want to start off with, right, it's no mystery what's around the corner, what's uh, com- occurring this week is uh, what is called Chris- Christmas Day. And um, I want to be able to, uh, you know, everybody's talking about getting ready to celebrate Christmas. I looked up Webster's Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary says to celebrate is to perform uh, a sacrament, a solemn ceremony publicly with appropriate rights, to honor for an occasion such as a a holiday, especially by solemn ceremonies, and to mark something as an anniversary, right? And so everybody marks this day as the birth of Christ. Actually, December 25th is not the birth of Christ. I think I preached that a few messages ago. So everybody knows, right, December 25th, 25th is not his birthday. But I, I, I'm going to submit to you today that I really believe in my heart that despite the recognition of the birth of Christ by our culture at large, by religious institutions, I don't believe Christ is worshipped on Christmas. I really don't. At least the Christmas that we know. I think He's not worshipped for three reasons. Primarily, You know, Christmas is not a celebration of the birth of Christ. It's certainly not, it it, it has, if anything, it has devolved into something, quite frankly, paganistic. I'm just going to put it out there, right? It's not a celebration of Christ because of the rampant consumerism, right? We become obsessed. Now, I know a lot of people like to say, well, Christmas is about giving, isn't it? But when you focus more on the giving rather than the giver, what you actually have done is you put eager anticipation in the hearts of people to receive, to accumulate, to get things. And that materialism, that consumerism, the Bible would call idolatry. Whenever we have something that replaces the joy of God, that becomes idolatrous. Right, So what you see transp- uh, taking place in, in the marketplace and all the other different things, well, that's not really a celebration of Christ. As a matter of fact, it's sad, but probably among believers and unbelievers, I think that the Lord and the celebration of the Lord's Christ and the atonement that was made and that God became man kind of gets crowded out at this time of year. There's a third element. It's all at a cultural indulgence. Now you're probably going, bah, humbug, he's really going to rip into us. No, I just want to call a few things to your mind. There is this cultural indulgence, right? 
and, and you see it being perpetuated. Christmas is about family. Christmas is about giving. Christmas is about, you know, trees and wreaths and all the other stuff. Now, let me, let me qualify. If you have a Christmas tree, you're not a sinner. Okay, can we put that out there? But the issue is this. When these things overshadow the miraculous, most significant event that took place in creation, that God became a man, that He dwelt among us, then fundamentally we who identify ourselves as Christians, and by the way, I have a very good definition, those are those who have been born again, sanctified, redeemed by God Almighty, in whom His Spirit dwells, who are stamped for eternity, those Christians, it's imperative, it's incumbent upon us that we do not fall prey to the whims and the ways of the culture. It becomes incumbent upon us that the testimony of our hearts and of our mouths is indeed Christ. And Christ alone. So we're going to take a look at a portion of Scripture here found in Luke chapter 2. And the main body of our text today is going to be verses 29 through 32. But to do that, I want to give you a little bit of background. Our Scripture reading today was... Uh, Luke's narrative of the birth of Christ. And by the way, you should probably take note that Luke interviewed many, many people. And it is thought, it is thought, that the narrative that we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, 1 through 20 that there is a very, very good possibility that that narrative came from Mary herself. A very good possibility. So we have like an eyewitness perspective of the birth of Christ. But follow with me now, verses 21 through 28. And it says, When the eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given to him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present them to the Lord. For as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God, and we're going to pause there for a moment. So Jesus is already born. Jesus was circumcised. And his parents bring him up to Jerusalem to fulfill the requirement of the law, what's called the presentation 
of the firstborn male. That's what's happening. Now, this is approximately 40 days after the birth of Jesus. Circumcised on the eighth day, right? And then 30 some odd days for the purification of Mary before she can come into the temple. So we can have a rough estimate that Jesus is about 40, 40 days old at this point. And notice what they're doing. They're going straight to the temple, and he was circumcised on the eighth day, and then he is presented as the firstborn. By the way, notice that term. What is the ceremony that's going on? It's the presentation of the firstborn male. Right? The first one who opens. That term firstborn, I believe, is put in there by the Holy Spirit specifically so that we cannot come with an alternative theory that Mary was a perpetual virgin. That Jesus indeed had brothers and sisters. They are named in the Scriptures. They are not cousins as some people. If it was to be cousins under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they would say Jesus is cousins. But he's referred to as their brothers and their sisters. And here they're fulfilling the law. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4.4, right? That when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Christ became the fulfillment of every type of the law. The only one, mind you, that could ever fulfill it. And we see it right from the onset of his birth. The diligence of his parents to bring him into the temple, to present them to the Lord. Luke quotes verse 23, says, That as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said of the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now the requirement in Leviticus was a a yearling lamb that was going to be brought. But if you couldn't afford a yearling, well there's two turtle doves. What does that tell us from the scriptures? It tells us that Mary and Joseph weren't people of means. That Jesus was indeed born into a lower statue. I don't know if they were destitute and, you know, I don't believe that. But they were working class people. And so what they were going to present were two turtle doves. And then we see this person in verse 25 emerge. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now all of a sudden emerges this man, Simeon, and we don't know much about Simeon at all. This is the only time he is referenced in Scripture. But there are some characteristics we derive from the text. Number one, we know that he's named after one of the tribes of Israel. Number two, the Scripture tell us he was righteous and devout. Righteous is that he was in right standing with God. Devout, that he was God-fearing. What a great quality. Oh my Lord, we need so many more people that are righteous and devout. Amen? 
people that are more concerned about what the law of God says, more concerned about pleasing, and they fear God more than they fear men. This man, Simeon. Now, you've got to remember something, right? Prior to the birth of, uh, prior to the emergence of John the Baptist, no prophet had spoken in Israel for 400 years. There was no one that says, Thus saith the Lord. Now, there were some significant things that happened in Israel during this time, but there was no prophet sent of God. These are the 400 silent years. And yet in the midst of that silence, God had His men. He had His women who were righteous and devout. Let me tell you something. We're entering years of silence. There are very, very few people out there that are preaching the true Word of God. There's a lot of clowns, a lot of charlatans, a lot of people who use the name of Christ to profiteer. A lot of people who use the name of Christ to make money, to gain fame. But how many people are out there preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, talking about the atonement for sins that is made through Christ and Christ alone? But we can be those people. If we love the Lord, we can be those people like Simeon. There's some other characteristics. He was righteous, he was devout, and he was looking for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. He was indeed looking for and promised that a Messiah would come to redeem not only Israel, but redeem the Gentiles. That a Messiah would come. He had an eager expectation. And you know what? What we see in Simeon is, is a lot of that faith alone that we talk about. In Romans 4.20, speaking of Abraham, we see a good illustration of this. Speaking of Abraham, Romans 4.20 and 21 reads as follows. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Hey, listen to this. Moses was 99 years old. He had been promised that God was going to give him an heir, that through this heir, the Messiah would come, that he would have a child, that his descendants would be as innumerable as the sands on the sea. And at 99 years old, I'm not 99, but I got to tell you, some of my best days are behind me. But at 99 years old, by faith, the scripture tells us regarding the promise of God, Abraham never wavered in unbelief. That's why we believe that salvation is by faith alone. And it's always been, that salvation has always been through faith alone. 
Don't ever buy that people in the Old Testament period were saved by keeping the law. They were not. They were saved just as Simeon was, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Believing in a Messiah, though they did not see him, they saw him from afar off. And we see this magnificent faith in Simeon. So that he was righteous and devout, he was looking for the Messiah. And then I, I want to really call out these words. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. Don't lose the meaning of that word. In the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit came upon select people that God used to do great things. Now, just get a sense. This guy is not mentioned anywhere else in the Scriptures. But the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwells all those who come to faith in Christ. And He fills others. But here we see this obscure, ignominious person. And yet, by God's divine grace, the Spirit of God was upon. You know what the church is lacking today? The church is lacking the Spirit of God. The church is lacking many who are saying, Father, fill me with the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that thy servant may declare thy word with all boldness. I hate to say this, but there has become an arrogance in the church. And the arrogance in the church goes like this. Well, once I found Christ, I need no longer to pursue Christ. Once I'm saved, I don't need anything else. And I will tell you that's not scriptural teaching. That we are to pursue Him. We are to desire Him. Remember the words, I say this often. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they and they alone are going to be the ones that are going to be satisfied. Don't fall into the trap that I believe in Jesus, I believe He died for my sins, I accepted Christ as my Savior, I, and I need nothing else. The measure of our devotion is in our pursuit of God. If we don't pursue God, how can we expect anything of God? We pursue Him because we love Him. We pursue Him because we are born again of His seed and we want fellowship with Him and we yearn for Him and we desire to be with Him. If these things are laborious, if these things are contentious in you, if, if you then check yourself and see if you're in the faith. For the people of God love God. It must be that way. It cannot be any other way. And that love is demonstrated through obedience to Him. What a great profile we have of Simeon here. The Holy Spirit was upon him. 
Look at verse 27. By the way, we haven't even got to the text yet, so just bear with me. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, I want, you to, I want you to really understand what that means. It didn't mean he came into the temple and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. What it means is that he was led by the Spirit into the temple. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the temple. And what was the promise to Simeon? Well, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, Hey, guess what? I got, I got, a, great, I got a great plan for you, man. You're, you are not going to die. I have sovereignly chosen that you will indeed see the Messiah. So as he was righteous and devout, he was making his daily visit to the temple and the Spirit of God drew him, drew him into the temple, in for an encounter that he had been waiting for his entire life. And so he comes in the Spirit and notice this, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and he blessed God. Now, I have a vivid imagination, but I could just see it. He's in the temple and he's praising God and here comes this baby. And this baby comes and they do the presentation of the firstborn male. And I see Simeon coming over and say, give me that baby now. And take him in his arms. And instantaneously through the revelation of the Holy Spirit, he knew he had Messiah. He knew he was holding the God-man. He knew that his eyes had laid hold on the Redeemer and the person that is going to bring consolation to Israel. And what do you do when you have an encounter like that? I'm going to tell you the Scripture tells you. He took him into his arms and he blessed God. Now, if you have been in Christ, if you had been a sinner, if you had lived another life, if you know what it is to rebel against God, to sin against God, to be in constant disobedience to God, if you know your sinful estate prior to Christ, and then when you laid eyes upon the Savior and upon the cross, and you came to that place of repentance and faith, can you do anything else but bless God? Why is the church ashamed of this? My goodness, this is the atonement for our sins. This is our assurity. This is our new birth. Without Christ, there is nothing. We would be damned to hell. And he takes them in. Oh, he looks at them, he lifts his eyes, and he blesses God. He praises God. He magnifies God. 
How many of you, when you got saved, had that experience where you came to the cross, where you realized your sin, where you realized that what you deserve, what you were getting were so different, and you bow and you bless God? One of my favorite verses, we're doing Romans on Tuesday night. One of my favorite verses in Romans is Romans 2.4. Knowing the kindness of the Lord leadeth a man unto repentance. Most people have the image of God being up there and saying, oh, I don't like you, you're disobedient, oh, I don't like you, and they're chucking pestilence and lightning bolts down on earth, and this mean, vindictive God is just letting it fly. But Paul says, do we think lightly of his kindness and his forbearance? Knowing that the kindness of the Lord leadeth a man unto repentance. Listen, it's God's mercy. God's forbearance. You know what forbearance is? It's withholding that which is rightly due. It's like being convicted of a crime on Friday and the judge says, okay, you're going to report for prison in three months. Well, he had forbearance upon you. He didn't bring the judgment right away. Listen, this is a day of grace. Please listen to this. This is a day of grace. If you are not in Christ, Christ's forbearance, He has held back what is rightly deserved. Don't take the grace of God for license. Don't say that, oh my goodness, I'm only 20 years old. I'll come to Christ when I'm 27. Don't say not now. I'm enjoying myself and I'm having a good time. But you know what? It makes sense to me and I'm going to do it. Don't do that. Don't take the grace of God for license. Prior to this COVID epidemic, Hitting my home. I was preparing a message that I will inevitably preach. And it's about being prepared. Being ready. At all times. Not sleeping. You know what? No prophet in Israel had spoken for 400 years and Simeon was prepared. He was righteous and devout. He didn't have the proof. There weren't great miracles going on. But he stood by God and God's word alone. And he was faithful. And God rewarded his faithfulness by laying eyes on the Messiah. That's the introduction. Now let's get to the text. Look at verse 29. Simeon says here, Now Lord, Thou dost let Thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. Now, I want to call something out to you. That word Lord is not the usual word Lord that we see in the New Testament. It's not the word kurios. Actually, that word Lord is one of the toughest ways you could express that word Lord. Actually, if you took the Greek text, translated it to English, the word there is despotes, 
which you then take off the E and the S and you get despot. What it means is that the absolute authoritarian master and owner. This is the word that Simeon uses here and I'm going to show you why. But it's the absolute authoritarian. It is the final place of authority where the buck stops. Simeon lifts up his eyes. He blesses God. He says, oh Lord, you are the owner. The owner of what? It's a term used for slavery. You're the master. You own me as a piece of property. And what we see here in this verse, a little play on words. Look what he says. Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant. We've talked about this many times before. What is the bondservant? A bondservant is a slave who has been offered their freedom, but out of love and obedience to the master says, I'm going to forego my freedom and I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. And by the way, they had a special earring that was placed in their ear, so as they went around, people would know that was a bondservant. He was offered his freedom. And many of these slaves during first century Palestine were treated nicely. I'm not making a case for slavery, so don't even go there. Okay? But many of them were treated nicely. And they loved their master. Now notice this play on words. Oh Lord, you my master, now you can let thy bondservant, thy slave, that's actually the word that he uses there, doulos in the Greek, you can let thy slave depart in peace. You know what, I'll tell you without a problem, Christ is my master. And I will tell you that I am his slave. And I will tell you that he owns me. What a glorious truth that is. Because without Christ, I made such a mess of my life. And now because of Christ, and because of His love, I, like many of you, submit myself wholly and freely to my Master for Him to do as He pleases. And that's what Simeon is saying here. O Lord, you can let me die in peace according to thy word. What word? The Holy Spirit was upon him. This was a revelation given to him. This was a, a revelatory word given to him by the Holy Spirit that you will indeed not die before laying eyes on the Messiah. How glorious. And I want to submit to you three things. We look at verses 29 through 32. I want to submit to you three things. Number one, we're going to see here that with the first advent of Christ, that our peace has come. Our peace has come. Number one. Number two, we're going to see that our salvation has come in Christ. And number three, we're going to see that our light, our God, has come. 
Notice what Simeon says here in verse 29. He says, you could allow me to depart. How? In peace. And I submit to you that Christ is indeed our peace. He is that peace that has been given to us. In verses 20 and 20, uh, 28 and 29, there is an amazing, amazing thing, not only in Simeon, but I want to show you something else. You see the old covenant meeting the new covenant. Here is Simeon of the old covenant, the Holy Spirit resting upon him. All he had been given was the law of the prophets and the writings. But yet, with eager anticipation, he anticipated that a Messiah would come that would, cons- would bring the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Israel, that he was going to come and be a, a, a light to the Gentiles as the prophets had predicted. And we see in, in Simeon this old law, this old covenant, but now something new has happened. The Lord of the new covenant had come. And notice where he is. In his arms. The old meets the new. And you know something? There's no objection. There's no friction. You notice that? Simeon welcomes the new covenant. Having seen it from afar, from a long way off, now the realization has come. And Simeon, what does he do? He embraces the Lord of the new covenant and how glorious and how magnificent here in the old testament with all its foreshadows with all its prophecies the law embraces the new covenant and with eager anticipation is accepting of his fulfillment romans 8 3 tells us for what the law could not do Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. God did what happened on what they call Christmas. God did what the law could not do through its ceremonies, through its foreshadows, through through its regulation. God did. How did God do it? Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. And He did that for all who would repent and turn to Christ. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Hebrews 10, I like, by the way, I like when Todd preaches, he says, you know, there's something about this church that when you open the Bible, it automatically flips to Romans. That's a good one, brother. Hebrews 10.1 For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifice year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. But God did. And He did it in Christ. Christ comes as the fulfillment of the law, the completion, the completion of the foreshadows. God incarnate has come to redeem mankind. And no more will animal sacrifices be required. 
No more do we need to fulfill the ceremonial aspects of the law. No more will priests have to enter the Holy of Holies. Messiah has indeed come. The Lord of glory has arrived. And it is perfect presence. And by Him becoming a sacrifice for sin who all who put their faith and trust in Christ. Salvation, pure and perfect, has come. And by the way, that is the peace that Simeon is referencing. You can allow thy servant to depart in peace. And that is the peace that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds in the field. They did not proclaim that the world was going to cease warring, there would cease violence, that everybody's going to hold hands and sing kumbaya with each other. That's not the peace that the angels stated, nor is it the peace that the angels implied nor referred to. The peace that the angels declared was that now the enmity with between God and man, the warring, the separation, is now over because the Prince of Peace has come. Remember when the angel said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men in whom He is pleased. And the most glorious thing about Christ and why this celebration of His first birth is so critical is He brings peace to those who are lost in sin. Peace to those who are disenfranchised. Access to those who strive and peace for those who strive via good works at the impossible task of satisfying God's righteousness. I've heard story after story of people who told me they were raised in churches and they did all the ceremony, all the ritual, all everything, but they could never satisfy God's righteousness. Right, because what does Romans 3.20 say? By no works of righteousness shall any flesh be justified. But Christ came and He brought us that peace. And He now satisfies God's righteousness. Yes, it's true. Isaiah 9.6 and His name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Remember we did that a few weeks ago? Eternal Father, the Prince of what? The Prince of Peace. The Prince of Shalom. Everything the way it's intended to be. Yes, on that first night, when Christ came, Our peace had come. Look at verse 30 and 31. Our salvation has come. Look what Simeon says here. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people. Simeon cries forth this mighty phrase. I'm going to submit something to you. He came into the temple under the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him to the temple. He took the baby in his arms. And I guarantee you, he did not say, well, Lord, now I can let thy servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people. 
I don't think so. Under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Simeon blessed God, and I believe he cried it out, that whoever was there in that temple on that day heard this glorious message, because that's how God always intends His message to be heard. It is to be echoed. It is to be cried forth. It is to be declared. And I believe that Simeon there said, Now, Lord... Thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people. How many of you have seen the salvation of the Lord? Have experienced the salvation of the Lord? How many of us boldly declare the salvation of the Lord? That is what we as Christians are called to. We are to go out and proclaim the gospel. We are to declare it. You look at the first church in Acts. What did it say? It said that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaimed the word of God with all boldness. I don't think boldness is, hey, do you know Jesus? You got that one for free. The revelation of God's salvation has brought joy immeasurable to this saint of God. And filled with the Spirit, he declares. There's so much nonsense today when people talk about they're filled with the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit. They do everything except boldly declare the Word of God. And you look at Acts, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're declaring the Word of God. Church, let me submit something to you. We sin. We sin. And we do not do right before the Lord when we refuse to declare Christ. Can we call it what it is? Can I get an amen? And if we're completely about the cultural aspects of the Lord's first coming, if we're preoccupied with our self-needs, our wants and our desires. If we fail to declare the Lordship of Christ and His salvation, then we don't do what's pleasing in the eyes of God. Do we not know like Simeon that our salvation has come in Christ? Have our eyes beheld that Christ has come? Are the eyes of our hearts so dimmed and so closed that we cannot recognize these things? We're living in, in weird times, I'm telling you right now. There is a great apostasy that's coming upon the church. And that's a great falling away from truth. Why? Because people are more interested to get their ears tickled and tell me something that I feel good about, Pastor, versus the Word of God. Church, we need to repent. We need to repent of this wrongdoing. 
We need to repent of our preoccupation with ourselves. We need to repent of our felt needs, of our indulgences, of our pleasures and comforts, and our blatant disregard for all that is pure, holy, and righteous. If we profess Christ, then let us possess Christ. That first Christmas, our salvation truly had come. Look at verse 32. In continuation of verse 31. Which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples. Verse 32. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of thy people Israel. Oh my goodness. Isaiah 9.2 says. Those that have dwelt in darkness have seen a great light. John 1, 4, In Him was life. And the life was the light of man. Our God had come after years of darkness and after years of silence, just like He had promised. And let me say something, church. We are looking with shock at all the degeneracy that we see happening in our society. But there's a bad thing happening in the church today. That shock has caused us not to enter the battle, but it's caused us to pull back and murmur and complain. Oh my goodness, what are we seeing? Oh my goodness, all the election. Oh my goodness, all this other different stuff. For Pete's sakes, when are we going to wake up, draw our sword, and get into the battle? After years of darkness, we're entering years of darkness. Trust me on this one. There will come a time when no one speaks the word of God. Let me share something else with you too. We're able to gather here. You know what? Don't take that lightly because a day will come when we will not be. And what will we do then? Oh, I can't go to church anymore. Oh, they're meeting in the woods. Oh, What, what are we going to do? 75% of Christians live under persecution. 75%, many of them punishable by death, imprisonment. Will we be worthy to look at those Christians in North, Camp, uh, North Korea dying in labor camps and say, oh, I suffered for the Lord too, I had to wear a mask. When these people have lost everything for Christ. God had entered his own creation. God had come through one of his creatures. The unapproachable one had now drawn near. Salvation finally and full had come to man. Deity had become flesh, the very one who angels worshipped, and they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, had now become a human being as was in the arms of his mother as a babe, 
coming for one reason and one reason only, to die, to make an atonement for all who put their faith and trust in Christ. We sang it, our first hymn today, the God-man in the great hymn by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Listen to these words. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. At his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And let me tell you something. That is an imperative point of faith. If you believe in a Jesus that is not God, that's not the Christian faith. He is God in the flesh, our Emmanuel, God with us. As Isaiah 61 says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. Let me ask a question. How, how is it, how is it that we cheapen these truths? And we, del- we diminish the glory of God for material possession, for gifts, for trinkets. Why do we fall prey to the schemes of Satan, the prince of the power of the air, and veil the glory of God at this most miraculous advent? Dear Christian brother or sister, you might be saying, well, what does this have to do with me? I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. I believe in his incarnation, his virgin birth. I believe that he came to save mankind from our sins. Here it is. The application is this. If we believe this, then let us live it. It's that simple. It's not much more complex than that. Let Christ have preeminence in the celebration of His first coming. And not not everything else. Let the glory of God flood our souls. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Let us boast of our God who sent His only Son to save us from our sins and give us new life in Christ. Let us make much of this with your families and friends as you gather. I understand it's been a rough year for many, myself included. If there is one thing that the enemy has done to many Christians, is he has robbed the joy of our salvation. Many in this body have suffered sufferings immeasurable and something that we couldn't think of. But can I submit something to you? We're all here by the grace of God. And Christ has never disappointed. And Christ has stood with us. Some in death. He has stood with us in death. Some in suffering. Some in unemployment. Some in depression, but he has prevailed and he will prevail. Many are struggling with their faith, not finding the joy at the news that Christ came. 
to them I say to you, let's come back to the temple. Let's meet with Simeon and others who can proclaim the glory of God who is in our midst. Let us say like Simeon, now thou can let thy servant die in peace. Oh, good Lord, I can die in peace. I'm telling you today, I could die in peace if I dropped dead in five minutes after this. Do not cry for me because I died in absolute peace. And if you know Christ, you die in peace. My eyes have beheld the salvation of the Lord. I'll add another thing, and with this I'll close. At his first advent, at his first coming, Christ came humble. Came to serve and give himself a ransom for many. But dear friend, let me tell you something. Christ is coming again. And you can bank on that truth. And he's coming again, not as that little itty-bitty baby in a manger, but as king and ruler of creation. And he is coming again in this manner, Revelation 19.15, and from his mouth, listen up, from his mouth comes a sharp, uh, a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And there ain't going to be no little drummer boy at his side. Christ is coming, and this time to bring judgment upon those who have rebelled against him. Christ is coming to those who have not repented of their sins. Christ is coming, and He is bringing His reward for those who love Him. He's coming to ransom and rapture His bride, the church. Bring Him home for eternity. And let me share something. Every eye will see Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess the most devout atheist, the most devout humanist, the communist, all the others who said he's a lie, it doesn't exist. They will indeed confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he will be hailed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is faithful and true in righteousness. He will judge the nations. Turn with me to Revelations chapter 19. And with this we'll close. See, one was uh, to get your mind set that I was going to close. Now this is the actual close. Revelations 19. Look with me at verses 11 through 16. This is the second advent. This is the coming of Christ. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his 
head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God, the Lagos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And hear his name, the Lagos, the everlasting And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he might smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name, which is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And to that I say, Amen. Because from the very manger, he was the king of kings and lord of lords, and he will be so through eternity. Amen. Why should we worship Christ on Christmas? Because it's all Christ. It's all him. Join with me in a word of prayer. Father, we are so unworthy. So, so, so unworthy. Oh, but Father, by your mercy, you have provided for us the very best in Christ. Oh God, that we would repent of everything that obscures him during this holiday season, that we would indeed repent of the culturalism and the consumerism, that we would repent and declare like Simeon, now, Lord, now, Master, you can let thy bondservant depart in peace for my eyes have beheld thy salvation. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Father, now as we gather around the Lord's table, Father, may you prepare our hearts. May you come in fellowship with you as we declare your birth your death, your resurrection, until he comes. We give you glory, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.